What is up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast, the show for all things real food and the processes that bring it to the table. As always, I'm your host, Poldy Wheeland, and this episode is a conversation with Chad Johnson, who is a master ecosystem and edible food forest garden designer. Chad spends his time designing food forests across the world. His early days as an ecosystem designer were spent studying under Sepp Holzer, a legendary permaculturist from Austria who chose Chad to become his protege. And since then, Chad has spent over two decades designing food forests and waterways with a focus on resilient, low-maintenance growing systems that incorporate biodynamic and regenerative farming principles. I had an amazing time talking to Chad. He shared a ton of interesting ideas with me during this conversation that really, really got me thinking. And you know, after talking to him, I'm more motivated than ever to one day start one of these food forest projects on my own land once I have it. And I hope you guys feel the same after listening to this. So just for a quick episode overview, as always, first we get into how Chad got started as an edible ecosystem designer. Then we get into creating diverse habitats that will attract a host of flora and fauna to your land. We also talk about a unique way of dealing with deer and other critters who tend to come in and plunder gardens. Next, we get into turning deserts into green oases that are able to produce plentiful harvests. This is awesome. If you've never watched uh, one of these videos online, there's people like Chad and Sepp Holzer out there who literally take deserts and turn them into like green paradise. It's just mind-boggling how that turns out and it's just really really awesome that there are people like these two guys here like chad and sep out there doing this and trying to figure out how to do it after that we get into building edible ecosystems on a small plot or you know when you only have a small amount of acreage available and then we get into how you know introducing more food forests uh, can really strengthen local economies and how that might be something we can do to really set our local economies up for the future with you know more food sovereignty and just a more decentralized food system. And then finally, we got into some of the listener questions that you guys sent in, which by the way, thank you for doing that. Um, I usually post about guests coming on the podcast on my Instagram. So you know if you follow me over there, you'll have a chance to ask questions and I'll try my best to really incorporate them into episodes for this specific one. I wasn't able to ask all of them just because we ran out of time, but I think the ones I did ask, Chad had some really good answers to. As always, this is the Year of Plenty podcast. If you enjoy it, absolutely incinerate that subscribe button. Leave a five-star review either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and don't forget to share it with a friend or someone who you think might get value from these episodes. Sharing the podcast is still the best way to spread the word. If you really get a lot of value from these episodes and you want to help me keep the lights on, help me produce more episodes, please consider making a small donation over on Patreon. It's a small $2 monthly donation, you know, less than a cup of coffee. Otherwise, if you're just into one-time donations, you can also head over to my Buy Me a Coffee account that I set up recently. Links to both of these, the Patreon and the Buy Me a Coffee account, will be in the podcast episode description. So definitely check that out if that's something you want to do. And of course, if you want to start a conversation with me, head over to my social media. The best one really would be Instagram, which is at Poldy Wheeland, P 
P-O-L-D-I-W-I-E-L-A-N-D. Follow me over there, send me a direct message, and let's get a conversation started. All right, that's enough talking from me. Get ready to learn from Chad Johnson. But yeah, Chad, welcome to the show, man. How's it going? It's going very good. Thanks, Paul D. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you here. You know, I've the last couple episodes, I've kind of been going down the wild food rabbit hole, but what you are doing, um, you know, in the permaculture space is actually something that initially was something that I was really interested in when I got into all of this. Uh, I think we, when we spoke yesterday, I told you my stepbrother was an organic farmer. So he really, he introduced me to Sepp Holzer and whatnot. So I, I read a little bit of the book, one of his books back home in Germany. And yeah, I'm just excited to be able to pick your brain a bit today and, and kind of dive into, you know, this topic of edible ecosystems, I, I would call it. Um, and it seems like, you know, over, over the last hundreds of years, we've last hundred, 200 years, we've been kind of destroying nature, you know, instead of healing it. But now I feel like people are waking up and, and, and really trying to get back to a place where we're healing landscapes and whatnot. And so it's the work you're doing is super incredibly valuable in my opinion. But, uh, to begin, you know, maybe you can just kind of share who you are, you know, what you do in the permaculture space. And then maybe you can just kind of explain what permaculture is for those people listening who might have no idea at all. Yeah. And permaculture, uh, it's kind of a word. I think it's a lot of ancient stuff brought together with a lot of modern stuff. Um, the coin was uh word was coined maybe back in the late seventies, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. But from there, it started to really take off because I think we saw the distinct difference in what was happening with ecosystems um, and just with our food. So you look at our whole health and our way of life, and then we just seen down the road what's happened to our freedom or sovereignty or liberty. And that our time on earth is then affected by all that and you're kind of born into it. So I had some really eye-opening moments in my life and just whatever came through uh, spun my compass more than once. And I've kind of combined a lot over the decades. Um, a big piece of it is sepulchers because it just brings in so much life. Uh, but I also bring in key line plowing, key line design, uh, biodynamics, uh, wild culturing, and then a whole range of things that uh, I discovered along with kind of uh, just getting inspirations from other people's work. And then it allows you, once you start to really sink into it, it allows you to go into the desert or wherever like the site i'm on right now is just clay really just over yeah but it's great for waterways so we're doing edible lotus uh hardy lilies and then um aquaculture is much easier less maintenance than terrestrial so suddenly you can have something that's producing for you it's creating an ecosystem you just start layering all these benefits and it's also changing your way of life. Right. And you, you don't have to start fast. You can start small and learn and grow from there. Uh, but there's some key things that 
Sepp Holzer brings in with dreaming, uh, dreaming of landscapes, and then also listening, reading, and working with nature. So what he calls reading the book of nature. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Yeah, and you can almost go in any direction because you're actually being uh, reunited with nature. So every piece of land and every person is different. So you can kind of start with uh, what is your dream, or you can start with the practice of, uh, you know, what are your values? What quality of life would you want? How do you want to spend your time on your, and you're not looking at a destination as like uh, retirement. Right. Uh, you're more sculpting the journey. And that's where it really comes alive. And it can always change. You know, your, your holistic goals or what you want to do can always change. Right. And then how, how did you get started on your journey, you know, with all of this? So you're currently like building these magnificent edible ecosystems, you know, a small and large scale, correct? How, how did that start for you? Cause, um, is that like, is that something you've been doing since you're a kid or something that came later in life? There was glimmerings. I mean, as a child in nature and out in the swamps and the lakes, uh, just had a really uh, beneficial upbringing that way. Um, but usually dad was gone away at work, mom was home, and then the kids in the neighborhood all, you know, running through the swamps or lakes and playing in nature. And then a big one was sculpting in the sandbox. Mm. Um, and this kind of relates to Seth Holzer's work. So you kind of feel like you're becoming a child again when you start doing this. And that imagination of let's have a truck go up here or there's a path here. But then you're making a living landscape. Now you've got the trees, the edible flowers, all these things you can start to bring it and it's, you're inhabiting it. And so it's not just for wildlife. It's not just for the plants or the mushrooms, trees. It's also habitat for people. Right. And it starts to awaken something in you because unless you, you can see pictures of a landscape, but then when you walk through one and you, you start to fill your senses, you know, whether you're smelling the fragrances, taking in something that's coming around the bend and there's blossoms and there's all kinds of beauty, it starts to awaken something that's ancient inside of us. Yeah, you know, you know, I experience a similar feeling uh, when I'm going out and harvesting wild plants or wild mushrooms or even hunting and whatnot. Uh, it's just this deep connection you can have with nature that I think a lot of us are missing these days. And from what you're saying, it seems like you can have a similar energy from a garden or like from an ecosystem that you're building on your land. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can create. We took this place we're at now it was just flat piece of ground pretty much on my farm too and you can sculpt around looking at the benefits and even the challenges and making those positives in the landscape uh, and you're also assessing what you would love or what would someone like and if you only have a little space a backyard and you're in a city you can still do it on a tenth of an acre or even less right you can actually begin inside your house and start learning about mushrooms and growing them. And that's one of the big gateways is mushrooms. Well, how so? Mushrooms are just very important for the soil biology. Mm -hmm. That and even for our health, mushrooms are actually uh, closer in their makeup to human beings than plants. 
and they're an underground mycelial network connects all things, all life, and it sends out nutrients and information, you could call it. I don't think we even have words for a lot of what's going on in the plant world, above ground and below. Um, but it's a great connector, and it becomes food, it becomes habitat, but there's something that plants, mushrooms, all these things, when they're happy, they start to give off a feeling. Um, and mushrooms, we don't even know, like maybe, I think we know 12% of all mushrooms. Oh, really? I didn't even know that. There's like a it's like an the entire ocean. mystery. Yeah, there's, there's a massive mystery. We just don't see it. And I see these veils even open up in my life where I'm like, oh, I did not know that existed. Or wow, there's an epiphany of making something really happy that can take off. Um, mushrooms, actually, the spores pretty much across the board are one cell big. So they're super small, but they're the most electrically dense thing we know on Earth besides metals, wow. except they're organic. And so when a storm rolls in, you feel the air pressures lifting and the first drops come down and now they're the drum on the top of the mushroom cap that's releasing the spores. And now these spores come out and they're very electrically dense. So when you know that the storm's coming in, an electrical storm, and they're actually very light and that air pressure is lifting, now that starts to come out and now... Any charge in the ground that can gather hydrogen ions and electrons can zip up as lightning. And now that electrical pulse has a magnetic tree that spirals up and all those one cell electrically dense spores can now ride that up and go up into the upper atmosphere. And wow. now you see how those travel. So I just had a paracel mushroom come and land in my garden, and now I have another edible mushroom. And the same thing, that's just one thing that's traveling, but the birds and insects do a similar thing, and the plants, and they work together. So if you create the habitat in your garden, and it's a diverse garden, and you're looking at the earthworms, the while you're catching the water, where you're putting the plants, what you're bringing in, that creates habitat, and now life will move in automatically. Maybe it's taking its journey from South America. It's got it's on its radar without it even knowing, and it just lands. And now we have vervain. And so this has happened more than once. When my wife, vervain is one of them, where she said, boy, I'd really love to have vervain. And it's winter, the big dream time during uh, – six months winter for minnesota where you're from so there's yeah. a lot of yeah um and then that spring there's vervain pops up and we don't know anywhere it's growing nearby um rare bird from asia showed up um and other plants now the it's become a nexus point so a lot of birds and insects come in and they're carrying seeds and they disperse them not just in our garden, but the surrounding area. And they're taking, replanting everything we have outward and they're bringing in seeds inward. Wow. And so they're planting it faster than we could now. So it, it sounds like you're not only 
the one designing and actively crafting these ecosystems. I don't know. Should I call them food forests or edible ecosystems? What's yeah. I don't I mean, think there's a word yet. Right. It's not stuff. really a word. <laughs> you're creating them, but then you're also like attracting n- nature's different creatures and beings to to help you almost, you know, establish this landscape. And I'd love to like, do you think you can just kind of paint us a picture of like what some of these ecosystems look like that you're creating or that you're thinking of? You know, just so we have kind of an idea, because a lot of people, I think they think food forest and they think like actual forest, but what you're doing is a lot more. You're like, you're building different, I think it's called earthworks, right? You're building different um, habitats on a, on a piece of land. Maybe you can just kind of p- paint us a, a picture of what that could look like, you know? Yeah. So that's a really good question because it's even varied at my place. But overall, we started with the place where we're doing our timber frame. And we look at the contours and we look at the surrounding landscape where the water can be caught and the average rainfall. And so you can tell how much water on average you're going to be able to uh, hold in your earthworms or in your waterways because your earthworms become sponges and they regulate water. And then you also have perfect drainage. And so when it rains or the snowmelt comes, then that water is slowly percolating through and water is life. It's finding ways, routes through the soil, which become routes for worms and for roots. So the worms become the plows. And we created an intensive, abundant growing system with low maintenance. So we have no tractor. There's no fence. There's no composting regimen. There's no fertilizing there's pretty much you set up an ecosystem and when you do that when you're looking at the contours they're going to bring that water channel it and then when you think of water as life then you can start to hold that water and there's multiple ways you can do it with the earth but then you also dig deep and you go down into the earth and you look at the different profiles so it's like oh we have this much topsoil let's use that as our planting soil And then we have, oh, we have clay. Let's make a pond here. And so usually around where you're making your your water features, you're taking the most lively soil because that's where the water's been going. And now you start to build out your terraces or your earth forms, your hobbit holes, these kivas for a fire. You know, you make it enchanting so you want to live outside the box, really is what it is. And it's your imagination that can go wild. You kind of feel your health get boosted up because now your moods and your intrigue with your surroundings is uh, holding you in a different way. Right. So what are like some of these earthworks? Like you mentioned terraces. I know there's like Hügelkultur, right, in German. Like what, what do those look like? Can you maybe speak in those a little more just so we can, you know, get a better like for someone who has no idea what that is, you know, that they can have maybe mm-hmm. kind of a picture of what that looks like and, and maybe, you know, when would you use a terrace versus some of these other earthworks? Maybe have some examples for us. Yeah. Um, so you can create one of these, but then you also want to look at it as almost like an organ in a body. Mm-hmm. So you want it to do more functioning even outside of itself. So if we're making a, a Hugo bed, uh, we'll either take the sod, whatever's on site, you're using whatever's on site as much as you can. 
we'll take the sod or we'll take the trees and we'll clear whatever and we'll make our shape. And it's nice to have an organic shape. Uh, you're creating different microclimates, but then you can also block winds. And so you have this organic core you can put on subsoil onto there. And now this all has air in it. And you're bringing in air as you're moving the earth. So as you're bringing in that air, you start to supercharge it. And it also now becomes loose and it becomes higher up. So by our road, we can't see our road and it's muffling the sound because we have these different earth forms. So Hugo Bed will have an organic core and then it'll have a plantable surface. And now instead of just this flat ground, now you've doubled or more your area for planting. Ah. You've also, if this is the south side, now that becomes like a solar panel. And there's different areas where moisture will be down at the ground level as compared to hot and dry. Then you put the plants that love it up there. I love to make it so you can actually walk across the top. And it's really sweet when you can have two people taking that journey across that. And then you're harvesting from trees planted below. So now you're grabbing fruit. Or maybe you're on ground level and you're walking and you're harvesting a strawberry at eye level. And then you can also see if you make those levels around eye level, five or six feet, you can see into the ground level from the level below. So you can see the mushrooms easier that are popping in. Um, and there's many other functions like the uh, water remineralization, the perfect drainage, having microclimates, your wetter zones, your hotter, drier zones. Um, and these earth forms are also charging up with water too. So that when a, when a climate extreme comes, it has the water charged into it and it can use it to grow and it'll grow quick because you've loosened up that soil so roots can penetrate easy. Water can penetrate easy. We'll be broadcasting like 50 or 100 different seeds out here pretty soon. We broadcast them. The earth is soft and the rain plants everything. And now you have almost like a perfect scenario because the soil is like butter. Even if you have seeds blow in that you don't want, uh, you're weeding at a higher level and you're weeding in soft soil. So now it pulls out easy. I let a lot of my stuff go too. If there's something I don't want, I take it out. But the maintenance is a lot less than most gardens and you'd think. And it gets less as you go because everything you're planting is filling in or reseeding and filling in. And typically I do things that are edible, medicinal, or have multiple benefits. Right. Which makes a lot of and sense. Then, and terraces will actually... And Hugo Mounds, some things like to, when they open up like currants or something, they'll go down, they'll open up, the fruit gets heavy, it goes down the slope and then replants itself. So wherever you touch any woody stock, you can actually, it'll inspire where there's leaves coming out for now roots to come out. And you can help that if you want and push it down and put a rock and throw soil over it. And then next year, year after you have another plant. Otherwise, things like currants will do it themselves. So I have a mother current that's maybe you know five to seven years old that has 10, 20, 30 babies around it. And now that's a free nursery stock. And I plant and replant it somewhere or trade it for a friend for nut trees. Um, 
and they love growing on these slopes. Uh, and that's why it's a nexus for birds and animals to be born in there. I think I have 20 groundhogs who love going into these and they make their own terrace and then they'll just hang out right with their ducks. And we've wow. had weasels, we've had predators and prey all in the garden and you're creating this tension. So we have free range ducks and chickens and we have weasels, uh, fox, bear, wolves. Wow. Um, but it's, it's really working out once in a while a tree will get nipped by deer or, uh, but it's very rare. Yeah, it surprises me. That's something I was going to ask. You know, most people that create a garden, um, they will shield it. You know, they might work with nature in terms of soil and try to do it organically, but they will shield it from animals or, you know, other intruders with a fence, like artificial fencing. How do you feel about yeah animals in the ecosystems that you're building? And like, are you fencing at all, or how are you going about that? Uh, I, um, I've had some, a lot of things that have gotten eaten. So I'm using multiple strategies to steer deer. Some of those are earthworks. And then I plant the side I know they're coming in from with things like, uh, wild rose or sea berry. Um, and then putting kiwis on those or just trellising up those. So it's kind of like becoming a network of stuff that if my bed is six feet high, And now my rose bush is four, sometimes five feet high. Now I have a 10-foot fence and a thorny barrier they can't get through. Right. Um, and I steer it, and there's plenty for them to eat over there, so they just keep going over there. Um, wolves are coming through, so that also pushes the deer so they're not grazing as opposed to browsing. Um, and they're also, you know, they're manuring place too so it's kind of like a wild manure in a way well yeah because these i mean as we're seeing you know with the growing regenerative movement and just like people thinking more about you know the place of animals in an ecosystem especially in a farm it seems like yeah these these like especially ruminant animals are so important for the soil and just for you know an, an integral part of the carbon and nitrogen cycles and they just in, are needed for a healthy ecosystem so I, I really like how it seems like you're not looking at them as enemies, you know, that are trying to steal something from you. It's more like trying to incorporate them into it and almost work with, together with them, you know. It's pretty awesome. I love yeah, that. Yeah, one other thing I discovered on that area, there's multiple things. Um, using the earthworms in different ways to steer them, using thorny barriers, and then uh, I like to get things that, Uh, run or produce themselves either by birds or them just like running their roots and coming up. So I got a raspberry that's just delicious and it runs and it just produces a lot. Um, and then I realized, Oh, that's like a thorny patch. So I started planting little fruit trees inside of there. And so that's what I call raspberries. Oh, I love it. So it just, it's kind of, It also becomes a nursery. So now you have that, you know, little plants, little trees kind of need a little community and protection from just the glaring sun. So now you've opened that up. Raspberries run along the surface. The fruit tree can go down below. And it's got the shade and protection and the things that are being given off by the leaves of the raspberry as it's uh, part of its community or guild. 
And so then instead of the fruit tree having to struggle, it's the soil is being kept moist because of that nursery. Also from the wind, it's protecting from the wind and the other elements like heat. And so now that instead of like having to struggle or maybe even branch out quick from the bottom, it's inspired to reach up towards the light, towards that sun. And so it goes up and you have a much straighter, taller tree that then goes straight up and then branches off. Wow. So, yeah, I'm like really curious in your like methodology, you know, I mean, this seems like I'm sure you've spent like, how long have you been doing this now? 20 years, 30 years? Uh, when 9-11 happened, that was the beginning. And then it just slowly gained more momentum every year. Yeah. So, you know, as someone who might be trying to get into this, when they hear you talk, it's like, might be a little overwhelming, you know, because you have so much knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just like, how do you even begin? Like, when you are called in by a client, like, I'm sure you like, you come on your land and then they probably have all these ideas. But like, what's your way of just starting with a new piece of land? Yeah, meeting the people is as important as meeting the land. So, you know, seeing where the people are coming from and asking them questions about what quality of life and giving them a lot of, uh, like that presentation I gave you. Yeah. It kind of gives a diverse amount of different things. So you can start to kind of like see the different possibilities in an ecosystem. Um, and then the results of that, like some of the last pictures, you see these beautiful moments you can have with your friends, your children, your loved ones, family. And uh, that starts to change people's perception of what's possible because usually there's more possible than you can imagine. Um, and even than I can imagine, honestly, new things keep popping out. Um, but <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, when you're first beginning. Yeah. You look at the advantages and challenges of the landscape and you look at the water, you look at the soils and you think of what's possible. You can always bring in materials if you want, but normally you can just do it right from there. Um, starting out is just as exciting as you, when you build up, it's just going to keep going. Um, because when you start that first one, now you're reconnecting in a different way. Even if you've just done annual vegetable garden, um, when you start to branch out in a different way uh, and use your imagination, suddenly it becomes exciting. Uh, I like annual vegetable gardens that are, you dig a trench all the way around and then you fill that with wood chips that are inoculated with mycelium. So that becomes a wooden raised bed, but it's also holding water and it's holding, you know, the mushrooms are sending out nutrients Plants can't dive in and get through there easy. Once in a while, maybe a seed blows in, but you can get it when it's small. So you're surrounded by wood chips that are not good with mushrooms. So it's already producing that. It's your water regulation. And then it's also feeding the soil. And it's also keeping it cool. And this is just like an alternative take on an annual vegetable garden. And then the paths can be that too. And then you have your topsoil where whenever you see a sprout that you don't want coming in, or maybe you let it go so you can identify the plant. You can take that out much easier. You have soft earth that you brought in. Um, and then also having the bottom, 
especially if you do it in the spring, it's more important, is rolling out these big rolls of cardboard that can be 250 feet long, uh, four or six feet wide, and you roll those out as a barrier. So if someone wants fast food sovereignty, they can do, they can make one of these gardens in a day, honestly. You could roll it out. You can have the trucks do rolling dumps, meaning they're rolling out the wood chips, they're rolling out the soil on top of this cardboard. And then you're planting your seeds in there and you're putting your mushroom spawn uh, into the wood chips. And it's, it's pretty much that easy. Uh, the mushroom I like is a uh, big producer and just beneficial for everything is uh, wine caps, also called King Strafaria or Garden Giant. And you can buy because those it, like as an inoculant kind of? Yeah, there's multiple places if you look for mushroom spawn. There's uh, fungi perfecti. There is uh, there's a field and forest. There's all these new nurseries and places with mushroom spawn that are coming up everywhere, which is great. They're popping up a lot of stuff, plants, and the uh, natural kingdom is kind of circumnavigating, or should we just say going across the earth, where I'm seeing new plants and new mushrooms every year. It's never stopped. Um, so it's a very interesting time because that started maybe 10 years ago, as far as I could tell, 20, maybe there was an inkling of it. And then that has just roared up into something pretty amazing. Uh, I'm always surprised. But yeah, you could in a day have food sovereignty. In one day with that method, you could have complete food sovereignty. And then you don't have to go to the grocery store. You're growing something much better. And that suddenly changes your destiny. Right. And that's uh, that's something I love. You know, this idea of food sovereignty. And it's like when you're building these ecosystems, you know, most people look at it as like intense work, right? And yeah, it is work. You're putting in effort and sweat. But what are you getting out of it is, you know, it's a reciprocal relationship. You're getting out this food, these nutrients that's going to fuel you. And I think most people, you know, they don't have that kind of life these days anymore. They are living in a city. They're living in like in a gray, dark city, you no know, concrete city that's draining their energy. And then they're eating foods that are even draining their energy even more. You know, whereas if you're focused on building something like your own garden or your own edible ecosystem on a piece of land it's like it's a give and take and and it's cool to hear that so you think with like these cardboard can you like how, how should i imagine these they're just like cardboard rolls and mm -hmm. uline is a company called uline yeah maybe some people have seen it um if you look up the rolls you don't want the thin paper it may work but you're the corrugated cardboard and after two or three years, that disappears. And now you have just deeper topsoil. And that's just so you put on soil. You can put just like on top of like a pasture, or is that you would you no. need no? Yeah. Yeah. And then you suppress that seed bank and all the plants, and they just become organic matter for more soil life. And it's pretty much depending on where you're at, you probably wouldn't have to irrigate it, but uh, you could put the mushroom spawn along with your drip tape along the edge where the soil and the wood chips meet. You can mix a little soil into your wood chips because then the mycelium will just keep eating that too. Uh, so you can be a messy gardener. 
which i love like the idea of like the lazy messy gardener you know it doesn't always need to be perfect like and that's why i like this idea of these edible ecosystems so much because you can you know like you you mentioned earlier once you do set one of these up i think it's from what i was reading like there's a lot of work the first couple of years but then with time you know the the amount of work you got to put in and the management just becomes less and less like it declines and then you eventually you're hopefully just you know mostly reaping the benefits in terms of nutritious food right yeah and uh that rolling out the cardboard one is pretty simple especially when the trucks are doing the work yeah um and then when you set up a system with earthworks i'm not plowing after that you're setting up the earth so that you have abundance so that it's thriving and you have all these microclimates. So we are pretty much, uh, as the ecosystem fills in, we don't do much besides spreading plants more because we're, we have more raspberries or more currants or more of this or that. And then we're harvesting. So like at this place I'm doing now, they're going to have a ton of food. They're going to have so much. They're going to have all these options to go in whatever direction they want to go with it. And there's many. Um, and just a note on that, if you even have your production garden, start to put perennial, bring in all these different ideas. Or uh, if you go wild harvesting, bring back either the mushroom with the butt with the, still the mycelium on it, or put a cap and have it so that it can spore out in an area similar to where you got it. So I bring in wild plants and I put them in similar situations on the farm. So now the wild leeks spread. I'll, I'll gather a bundle of whatever and I'll take four here, four there. And now they've just expanded and now they're, they're running all around just like the mushrooms. Right. So this food starts to spread where you simply plant something, even like planting a seed. The amount of work you did to do that is a lot less down the road because suddenly that's spread into a food bank that you don't have to manage at all. So you're choosing almost, you're almost choosing plants, especially perennials that will proliferate by themselves almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then like, so, so, and then you're mixing wild with domesticated plants together in some of these. And then the irrigation, I'm curious about that because- you know, I remember there was one time where uh, my family bought a property of like two acres and I was all excited, like, oh, I'm going to start a garden bed in the middle of the forest and I want to do all this. And my stepdad was like, well, slow down. Like, how are you going to water all of this? You know, How are you going to water all of this? And like, he's like, oh, that's a good point. How am I going to water all of this? Now, good for you, though. Yeah. with the knowledge you have, you know, like how what role does the irrigation play what what are you setting up are you doing ponds are you doing like streams um you know and how does that work together with the earthworks yeah you can do all of it and you can do drought tolerant plants desert plants um but thing is there's so many different scenarios you could do um there's it's endless it's really uh it's really invigorating and on that note, uh, some of my greatest epiphanies have come from my mistakes. And it's when you do that, you jump into it and you don't know, but you do it anyways. 
suddenly these other doors or solutions come forward that you couldn't have imagined. Uh, that's just be, that's just become how I've gotten to where I've gotten really besides being able to work with some of the best in the world and just immersing myself in my garden or nature, because I'd rather be out there. Uh, that's why I say like, you can think outside the box, you know, you can live outside the box and it really does transform you. Um, I've had many people walk through the garden where you wouldn't expect them to just go to tears or groups of master gardeners that suddenly they can't uh, help themselves. And suddenly they're up on terraces, like asking what these plants are. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. It, it really does transform you. And especially with uh, Sepp Holzer's work, it's been pretty incredible. Um, and on the wild harvesting side, uh, unfortunately, I had a plan to be working with uh, Phoenicia Madrano, but she's now passed away. Uh, so she was a huge inspiration too. Um, and she's just, she was um, just riding horseback nomadically, planting and eating from the food forest she created over 30 years. Wow. just living in the national parks and people could travel with her and she taught them and they travel together. And as you're gathering seed, as you're uh, harvesting like the biscuit root, the seeds are going down and dropping. You can, at the right time, you're actually planting the seeds as you're harvesting the food. So you harvest the food and now you just planted 10 or a hundred more seeds, depending on what you're eating. Uh, so that made me realize that combined with a lot of the animals and birds, insects living in the garden and then spreading the garden out faster than I could plant was probably how a lot of indigenous or ancient cultures thrived. Um, even ones like, uh, the great pyramids probably weren't built in a desert. It was probably a highly functioning, edible, medicinal, beautiful ecosystem. Well, yeah, there's a lot of, there is some thought, you know, people studying ancient cultures that think that that was like almost a rainforest at one point, right? The desert there. Right. And I mean, that's something I wanted to ask you about because I know Sepp Holzer does this and I think you've done some of this as well, but you know, there's people out there like you guys who are literally taking deserts and turning them into this green paradise. Like how does, how do you even start, you know, someone like there's one listener that asked me, um, you know, how do you set up a food forest in like unpredictable environments? Well, you know, does that work? And and just kind of how how do you even start to turn a desert into good topsoil again or good soil that's something that can grow in, you know? Yeah, you hold every drop of water. And Sep did it in the Sahara Desert. And then I just did a project this Uh, last May uh, on the edge of the Mojave Desert with the uh, Mennonites. They kind of exodused northern Michigan and went to the edge of the Mojave and had me come in and I just took their their camels are producing tons of dung. So we mixed it with biochar. They had shipping containers on different rooftops. So we were harvesting every drop of water 
and then it's being held by the soil that's also being terraced and planted out and they get seven inches of rain a year so not much yeah a year um but he said he has more water than he even needs wow right now. so it's just- he's actually trying to keep some of the water out away from his fruit trees so it's almost the infrastructure that matters the most. Like you're, so you, and you're using like modern materials along with like some of these ancient techniques, like a terrace. Like that's got to be something that cultures have used for centuries, like for thousands of years. I right, I'm it's pretty sure. Mm-hmm. It's earth technology. It's appropriate technology, and it's it's technology that's going right back to the source, the source of all. You could say wealth, depending on how you define wealth are these systems um, and they change your life. It might not happen overnight, but you might not want it to happen overnight. Uh, the journey should be what it's about too. So if you eat something like we're about to plant all these things, including like strawberry tree. Oh, wow. And I've never heard of that strawberry tree. There's probably a million things people haven't heard about. <laughs> it's, it's really mind blowing. Um, uh, there's someone that I've been in contact with. We've been talking about working together, uh, Joseph Simcox, and he's kind of the Indiana Jones of the edible worlds where he goes around the world collecting these amazing, bizarre, edible things. And he just put out his first volume, but he said he probably has 10 more volumes to put out, and they're not small books. Uh, and that's just starting to scratch the surface. Um, it it really is mind blowing. I'm starting to wonder where these things are popping out of, because it seems like they're these are coming from their timeline, yeah, or that they've been reclusive and suddenly they're everywhere. Well, I've you know I noticed the same with like foraging. It's like wow, all these plants around me are edible. You know, like where before <laughs> you just kind of walk past them and like don't even realize that they're there. You just they're just a plant, but now it's like food. So yeah, there's just so much out there. It's it's really incredible, like that. Yeah, you know, one thing I I wanted to to talk to you about was like, you know, a lot of people that I've heard about that are doing food forests and this kind of stuff. It's, it's often in the south, like you know where there's a lot of sun, um, where it's just perfect growing conditions all year round. But you're from like Minnesota, from the north, you know, harsh climates, winter. And you're still making it happen up there. So like, oh yeah. How, how does that work? I mean, it's great inspiration. It pretty much thrives. Yeah. The, the freeze, the freeze in the water below the ground does something to enliven the earth. Uh, so we have a different set of circumstances. Uh, so mushrooms are everywhere. And then if we want to spread mushrooms, we can put them in different places and they'll take off and you can save them over the winter. And you can put them back in the sun and they recharge with vitamin D. So, you know, the people that were up there, you know, as you see these different cultures that have come here and kind of pollinated from different countries over the centuries, look at the people that journeyed, whether it was through hardship or through uh, visions of what could be possible. And now we have all, you know, if you call it the American cowboys from all these other countries, but it's kind of like a plant and a pollination and now we see the inventiveness. Maybe you have to be inventive or you don't make it. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's what a lot of Europeans and Russians said when I was working with SEP. They said, tell us what happens 
And I thought, I was like, well, it's probably going to be the same as what was happening over there. They said, no, because uh, you're America. You know, you guys are crazy. You guys are the cowboys. You're always inventing things and you're doing things without being afraid to make a mistake. Mm. And they, they said, we, some, we overplan. We're always very cautious. America uh, is inventive because they're not afraid to just go forth. It's the free spirit out here, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So for you, it just doing it in the north is really just a lot. It sounds like a lot of trial and error, working with like what your local environment already has, and then maybe trying just playing around with different domesticated species that might work. Does that kind of sound right? Yeah, and you can take your cues from nature, or you can look at nurseries to see what goes typically. Yeah, uh, but when you start opening up different avenues, a lot of plants and seeds will start rushing in, and ideas. Uh, I'm kind of a a big proponent of that. Our ideas or inspirations come from beyond us, even or come mm -hmm. through us as vessels, and that we don't end at our bodies, even if you think of us as energetic beings uh we know even through the the dead newtonian sciences that even a, a charge or anything electrical that's moving creates a magnetic field around it and that's just the primitive understanding of what we know to be even if you're closed off all doors you know that's true and then you think of the iron flowing in our blood or the many other things uh and a lot of these inspirations then that come from uh, maybe a garden that feels like more of a paradise and you're soaking yourself in there, a lot of these plants will just come to you, mm. whether it's through your imagination or someone comes and visits you and all these things through destiny, coincidence, or uh, perfect accidents. They, they just seem, if you are, if you're willing to step outside of what you thought the world was, uh, nature loves courage, as Terrence McKenna said, and it shows you that it loves courage because it removes impossible obstacles. I love that. So, you know, as much as I love the like multi-acre idea of these edible ecosystems, a lot of people only have like, you know, maybe an acre or less. And you mentioned earlier that you don't need a giant piece of property to really get started, especially for, because I have a lot of listeners in the northern part of the U.S., like, and you have a lot of experience with that, that region. What are maybe some, and I think you call them guilds, right, the polycultures, the different plants that work well together. What are maybe some that have worked well for you in the past that someone could try out in their backyard, you know? to start their own little food forest or ecosystem? I would say see where the water is in your landscape. See the contours because you're going to find better soil there and the water is already going to be going through there. Mm -hmm. And if it's on a slope, then you have that percolation. Typically southern, is, mm -hmm. typically southern is going to give you more. But if you feel, if you put your hand out flat like this, if you're outside and the sun is shining, Put it flat like this and then feel the sun on it and how warm it is. And then take your hand and go like this and then angle it towards the sun. And you're going to feel a huge difference in the amount of heat that's collecting. 
And that's part of the, uh, the super technology of terraces that is just kind of not known yet. Um, but I would recommend starting with earth forms. And I like to go big because the bigger, the seems the better for the entire ecosystem. Um, we've already had frogs. We just planted, we already have spiders. Uh, this is just the earthworks that we just did. And things are already moving in the butterflies, the birds were all over the trees. Um, so they know it's there. And they know the water's there, the plants are there. There's going to be all these different little niches. So if you can make something, even if it's small, a tenth of an acre, um, and this, let me just make it extreme, you can make a small bowl and you're blocked in the prevailing winds. You can get the wind prevailing from your airports. If you block those, now it doesn't evaporate and cool the earth. You're holding the water more. Mm. And let's say you have a little backyard and you dig down and you pull out the earth and your water catch from your roof now is going into this bowl. Maybe you, you go down six feet and you make a terrace around your backyard. And then you go down on the inside of that, you go down another five, six feet. And now you have this pond, maybe it's the size of a small room, but now that's habitat. And that's right. beauty. And you put in your water plants, you put in edible lotus, edible water lilies. Watercress, maybe. Watercress, wapato, arrowroot, all these different things. And then you don't even know you're in town anymore because now you have 10, 12 foot earth walls that are buffering the sound. They're blocking the wind. It's holding heat in different areas. You, we, I've got nine different kinds of kiwi in Minnesota. Wow. Uh, that's so and they go, they produce, they can produce up to 50 or 100 pounds of fruit per vine. That's crazy. And that's just with different infrastructure and different earthworks and microclimates. You can have that in a place like Minnesota. Wow. You could make that in one day in a backyard and plant it out the next day. And you'd be doing very well. That's incredible. That's so cool to hear. And then like, You know, people think of food forests, like, do you really need trees? Are trees an essential thing in such an ecosystem? Or It's nice for shade, and it's nice to have either blossoms at your head level or fruit. Um, I like to make destination or just powerful places in the garden that uh, you want to sleep in or meditate, you know, or make love in, mm -hmm. where it just transforms you. You have these moments in life where you want to get out there. Uh, and you know that it's going to be holding you. Uh, it's going to transform you. So when I start to imagine a landscape, I'm coming through earthworks that are giving mystery to the rest of the garden, but they also become transformational gateways. And in the plants and the birds and the animals and the flowers, they're all doing that and growing. So it only gets uh, more resilient. But you can do it in your backyard and you can do it pretty quickly because what took ancient civilizations generations now we can do in days yeah and it's the heavy equipment that were envisioned as destructive now become the forward escape and the things that give you freedom and sovereignty quickly wow so for someone who wants to learn get you know, dive in, like, what are some resources or places they should start to learn more about this? You know, 
Are there any books that really helped you on your journey, maybe? Uh, the, what Sepp would say is the book of nature. And I got to say, it, it just got to that point. I got a lot of great ideas from uh, hundreds of books, but um, Sepp Holzer's Permaculture or his Desert of Paradise, it gets you thinking outside the bounds of what's possible. And it gives you some really good uh, reading nature and working with nature, listening to the landscape, and also listening to your inner landscape. Uh, that's just as important. Um, that's where the real, whether you want to call it climate change or whatever, it's just people's perceptions, I believe, is where you go upstream and you start to kind of look inside of that. Um, but other books, uh, you know, I love biodynamics. I could go on about that for a long time. And that's, there's nothing really good that's out there. Honestly, it's so, it's so sparse. And Collected, but Maria Thun's biodynamic calendar is just a seminal piece. Um, uh, if you're going to do market gardens or something like that, which also has key line design in it, is Richard Perkins' uh, book that he put out. Uh, it's, it's thick. I think Sepp's book was $29, and now it's like over 100 bucks or something. Oh, wow. So, it's a good investment, though, I bet, for anyone who wants food sovereignty. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, from what you're explaining, it seems like, you know, once you do understand how some of this works or once you get an idea for it and try it out, it really doesn't take all that long to figure it out on a small scale. Yeah, yeah, making that decision or having that intention actually sets things in motion beyond you that you don't know. That's kind of where the... Uh, what Goethe kind of paraphrasing saying that boldness or magic comes out. Um, and I, uh, don't be afraid to make mistakes and don't be afraid to dream too big and just go out there because when you make that decision or you walk through that doorway, unseen doorways open up beyond that. And so every decision, uh, you know, has unintended or unforeseen possibilities waiting right yeah no i love that and it's definitely i mean this is inspiring me to I, right now i can't hear where, I, where i'm living but you know i almost feel like i have this calling and this need to have my own land and do all these fun experiments on and just connect with it in a deeper level like that i do you think like more people like how can we all collectively benefit from more people doing this is it that it'll, would, would this allow us to build a more decentralized food system, you think, like stronger local communities? Yeah, uh, definitely. And there's some out there who are taking Finicia Madrano's work, and now they're going into cities or towns, right? Um, which is great. And then people planting out areas uh, because you can do, honestly – what I've seen at my farm in the last few years has blown my mind because now the birds and animals are planting out faster than I can. <laughs> and the adjoining park is, and now it's probably going to be a million or more. I don't know. It started out with maybe a thousand around this stream where they'd fly into the garden, poop out the seeds, birds and animals, insects. And then the next year, 10,000, then a hundred thousand. I'm just trying to guess when I'm out there. I'm like, okay, now it's everywhere. 
now it's a million, I'd have no idea. But I, I think, uh, I think that's possible in a lot of places. You create the habitat, especially for yourself and nature, and the rest is pretty much taken care of. Well, yeah, because you always, you know, you're. I mean, Joe Rogan has been kind of having, for example, some people on his podcast to talk about, you know, the future of landscapes and farming. And do we, can we go away from this monoculture system? And I've, to me, it seems like having these, like, yeah, having these ecosystems in more local communities and people understanding, having that knowledge that that could be the way forward. You know, that way we don't need to just rely on California for vegetables to feed the U.S. and whatnot. And, um, yeah, it's just something that I think a lot more people need to tap into, that knowledge. And it's waiting. It's waiting out there for you. And I think we're seeing even like uh, how a bird knows to fly south or a mushroom spore finds its way into the garden, that we're seeing that on a cultural level in the world too. Yeah. Uh, you can see this, whether it's the spores of, or ideas have been released, a lot of people are now reassessing and changing. A lot of people not working from home, uh, more working from home or just working on the road and mm -hmm. changing up everything they do. We're seeing something that I don't think we've ever seen before because of the, the size of the population and the technology together. And now there's this unknown sentinel called nature who's just been standing there waiting. And what we have now before us is like a very exciting time. Yeah, I would agree. It's a, uh, yeah, very inspiring all you do, man. And I want to respect your time because, you know, you said uh, you got to go after an hour. I have one listener question, though, that I thought was pretty good. And I think that you could, could answer pretty well. And, and that was, Uh, what are some perennials that like a farmer or a landowner could plant near water edges to stop leaching and runoff, you know, maybe from roads or from like fertilizer runoff from not, you know, conventional farms and whatnot. Is there any, are yeah. there any species you can recommend to um, that kind of hold that niche? You know, it's going to be more of the doing a certain type of earthworks, whether you're doing an aquafuge or a keyway dam. Uh -huh. to actually mitigate that. Um, but the plants, the earth is the greatest filter and purifier. Um, the plants just bridge the uh, earthly and in the biodynamic world, the cosmic or heavenly. So it's kind of bringing together the earth and the heavens. Uh, so I would say any plants at all levels uh, that actually like water, even willow, Willow's a great one. It grows fast. It puts out a network. Having different levels, um, there are, it's almost like any, just about any uh, wild natural plant like. I know cattails, right? Cattail. Yep. Cattail's a huge one. Um, you would just have to remove the green because it's contained in the leaves. If you have things like heavy metals or toxins, so you don't want stuff. that to reintroduce that back into right. Your you don't environment. want to get from those, yeah, right, yeah. If there's something contaminated or leaching fertilizer or stuff, otherwise realize that the uh, the earth is an amazing, resilient filter. Um, I'm not worried about the earth being fragile um, or anything like that. 
Um, but I would say biodynamics too, that, that goes beyond, you know, there's something in the ether that works on the spirit level with biodynamics that has not been fully understood. Um, because when Chernobyl happened, any farms that were using this potentized barrel compost that Steiner's student, the biodynamic Pfeiffer, compost, yep. Yeah. Steiner's student, Eifried Pfeiffer and Maria Thun came together to devise something so powerful that it would withstand nuclear fallout and radioactivity. So when Chernobyl happened, any farms that were using this potentized barrel compost didn't have any radioactivity or nuclear fallout on the soil. And there wow. was even none in the plants. For so real? it's like so there was angelic this? beings. The Russian government studies tested all this. Wow, that's incredible. And then the neighboring farm would be completely contaminated. Yeah, there is something, you know, I, like I mentioned, there, uh, my stepbrother is a biodynamic farmer, so I, I, have, I have come in contact with all of that and the spiritual side of, of the biodynamics. And it's just, yeah, a lot of people, you know, think it's woo-woo, but I mean. It's good. The woo-woo keeps the veil. In. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> I guess yeah, you're right in that, in that way. But I mean, it's just this. This stuff, I think people need to be open to because there there are these all these examples of it working, you know. So I love that. Right, the greatest wines in the world are biodynamic, um, and this is a seed that I think uh, that was planted a hundred years ago by Steiner, but is also based in ancient because Steiner could go places in time and space and nature and into the human being that people hadn't seen or maybe never done since. Uh, so when he went away one season and devised this, I feel like we're just seeing it reemerge or emerge maybe for the first time on a larger scale or perception of people being like, Oh wow, this actually works. Yeah. But why is it? You look, and if you've never done it and you don't see the results, Of course, you're going to look online and it's going to say, don't do biodynamics. <laughs> right. <laughs> Or it's a bunch, it doesn't work because it's mind blowing. It does not seem possible, but it is. Yeah. And people like yourself are, are showing that it's working. I love it. Well, awesome, man. You know, I know you got to get out there and planting um, back in your farm right now that you're at, you're in Texas. We talked about that. So. That's very exciting, and I really appreciate you coming on. There's a hundred more questions I have, honestly. So if you're ever interested in doing another one of these, I'd love to. You know, I, I, I feel like one thing that I'm very interested in is like creating and you know, having land one day and then managing wildlife and the plants in a way that, you know, where I, cause where I don't need to have necessarily domesticated animals, like, Is there a way for me to to manage the wildlife population of deer on my land? Mm -hmm. You know, to, yeah, you to the, your deer exactly. You know, and it's you get water buffalo. You can get python and protect your greenhouse. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah. there's that, a lot you can do. That kind of stuff is super fascinating. I'd love uh, love to get a little bit more into that uh, if you have you know knowledge around that. So yeah, yeah let's do it sometime. This is really really inspiring. 
what you've told us today and uh you know where where can people like learn more about you if they someone listening is like wow i need this guy to help help me build my land like how can they reach you I've pretty much been off the radar for seven years, but I have a just a landing page and a contact page if someone wants to reach out. Uh, it's at keystoneintelligence.org. And the inspiration in that same place in the garden I was talking about uh, gave me the vision for leaving my farm and starting to teach this and develop practitioners. And that's why I'm focusing on this area just because of a lot of different circumstances so yeah feel free to reach out uh just give me a little time to get back to you because i'm in a busy season right now yeah and it's only i mean i'm loving the spring vibes here in montana right now it's i'm so excited <laughs> for the foraging season that's coming up and i was yeah. going before this i went on a little walk and i saw the you know thistle rosettes coming up and some lambs quarter and whatnot so it's it's definitely this is one of my favorite times of the year and i'm sure it is for you too a lot of new life especially in colder climates coming back, you know, things are coming back to life. It's always good to see. Yeah. It's amazing. Every time. Awesome. Nice man. talking with you. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right. Have a great day. Okay, everybody. That's it. That's all I have for you today. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I really liked and enjoyed talking to Chad. I learned a ton. This episode really got me pumped and motivated to start my own food forest one day and I hope it did the same to you guys. Again, if you want to support the podcast, hit that subscribe button, leave a written five-star review. And if you want to help me keep the lights on and keep doing this podcast in perpetuity, please consider making a small donation on Patreon. That's a small $2 monthly donation. Otherwise, if you're more into the one-time donations, I also set up a buy me a coffee account and links to all of this will be in the podcast episode descriptions. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really, really appreciate you guys, especially all of you that continue to come back and support me and the podcast. You know, you guys mean the world to me, and I truly mean that. Until next time, my friends, let's keep exploring real food together.